Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is Father Scott Borgman. Father, welcome. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. And before we begin our topic today, let's begin with a brief word of prayer. Very good. This is a uh, prayer, really, that I uh, obtained from some of the missionaries of charity. It's about radiating Christ. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Jesus, help us to spread your fragrance everywhere we go. Flood our souls with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess our whole being so utterly that our lives may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through us and be so in us that every soul we come in contact with may feel your presence in our soul. Let them look up and see no longer us, but only Jesus. Stay with us. And then we shall begin to shine as you shine, so to shine as to be a light to others. The light, O Jesus, will be all from you. None of it will be ours. It will be you shining on others through us. Let us thus praise you in the way you love best, by shining on those around us. Let us preach you without preaching, not by words, but by our example, by the catching force, the sympathetic influence of what we do, the evident fullness of the love our hearts bear to you. Amen. Amen. Your prayer was was quite apropos. Um, We are talking about the the shining of Jesus into our world, especially at Advent, when we reflect a little more on the actual nature of who Jesus Christ actually is. God become one of us, become human. Now, before we begin really talking about that topic a little bit, Could you tell our audience a little bit about what it is you do in the Diocese of Orange and maybe a little bit about why you do that? How'd you get here? Because I understand you have quite an interesting story in your background. Well, God has been very generous with my family as converts to Catholicism. We've sort of discovered the church later on and as the fulfillment of all of our evangelical background. My dad says he became Catholic because he read the Bible too much, you know, and (laughs) He uh, always taught us that God loved us, that he had a plan for our lives. And this really led us to a search for truth, for a connection to the early church, which would then lead us into this fullness of the faith, which is the Catholic Church. And we're so grateful to be Catholic. Um, I love being a priest, so I went through seminary and and uh, ended up uh, studying canon law. And uh, when you work for a a diocese and you have a degree in canon law, usually the bishop will put you into the tribunal. I'm I'm so sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's got a bad rap. It's uh, apparent. People call it the dark side of the good news, right? (laughs) But uh, it's a really wonderful encounter with mercy. If we do our job right, then uh, it saves the church a lot of headaches, and especially for the bishop, a lot of the scandals that we saw some years ago, could have been mostly avoided if canon law had been followed. So it's it's a wonderful encounter with mercy. It's for the salvation of souls, and it's a way of uh, really serving the, the church today and the future of the church. If we do our job right, it'll make their jobs a lot easier. Now, I understand you're, you also spent uh, quite a bit of time in Europe, and you've done some work with the or what we would call the pro-life side of the church. What is your background? Uh, so uh, growing up speaking French, and, and my English is, is all right as well, and, and <laughs> so uh, they asked me to come and help in a, uh, the Pontifical Academy for Life, which is kind of the Vatican's think tank for bioethics, which is uh, issues on life, which has a lot to do with the beginning of life, but also the uh, end of life and everything in between. Okay, so the wound of the tomb approach to, yeah, exactly. to the value of life. Exactly. So 
most people are not quite sure, and I had no, no idea what uh, bioethics was about, but speaking, uh, growing up speaking French, having, having English and Italian, they asked me to come kind of help with some of their conferences and, and kind of dealing with English and French speaking countries. So why does bioethics matter? We think, okay, you know, we, pro-life, we more or less understand respect for life is, is kind of a big thing dealing with the entire uh, as you say, womb to the tomb. And I always think of this uh, this wonderful woman, 49 years old, who had nine kids, and she finds out she's pregnant. True story. So she already has nine children, and the doctor says to her, look, you're, you're almost 50. Are, are nine kids not enough? I mean, if you go through this, and, and he actually told this woman that she would either die in labor or, or one or both, the children would perhaps pass away. Uh, the only solution was to get an abortion immediately. And when she finds out she's pregnant with twins, I, uh, you can imagine this, this traumatic situation she finds herself in, especially since her religious beliefs don't allow her to get an abortion. And long story short, she decides that she can't kill her own children in the womb and and uh, goes through with the, the pregnancy. After consecrating these two boys, what would turn out to be boys, to the sacred heart of Jesus, Nine months later, not only does she give birth to healthy twin boys, she's in great health, and now, 30-some years later, she's still fine. And, by the way, both of these boys were ordained priests 25 years later on the date chosen by the bishop, which would have been the, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And there's a million other stories, some positive, some a bit negative, but... Uh, it's important to see how life matters, right? From the very instant of our conception, we are wanted and desired by God, created in His likeness and image. So we are, we look like Him and we're created to act like Him in this wonderful process of redeeming the world. So your experience then in this pontifical council puts you in a position to have really contemplated, it's a think tank after all, to contemplate the nature of Jesus come to us, what Advent is really all about, and how we as human beings then reflect the nature of Christ and the nature of humanity. Talk to us a little bit about that nature of Christ in us and why it is. Uh, let me let me stop for just a second. I was listening to when they did the Supreme Court arguments and those types of things. One of the questions that came up was about is it all about religion for when life begins? And no, we, we can demonstrate that a human being, a, a, a physical human, begins when the zygote starts, when you have the combination of two different parts of the genetic code into one unique genetic code that continues from that point on. We can demonstrate that human life really does begin then, but there's a so what statement attached to that from our perspective. If you take God out of it, what really is the value of human life? So in my reflection on that, I'm thinking, okay, so as Catholics, how do we see that value of human life, especially when we're contemplating it during this time of Advent? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned science, and uh, it's extraordinary to to think at this time during Advent as we all set our eyes upon that light from the cave in Bethlehem in a, in a world that was very dark at the time, and we can relate in uh, coming out of a pandemic, which seems to be holding on and continuing. A side note is one cartoon that I saw said that the uh, greatest protection against the new variant was earplugs because we're, <laughs> we're hearing so much, you know, just stuff against our peace and uh, there's so much anxiety out there about the end of the world and are we all going to die from the pandemic, and yet uh, we can see that after a couple of years of this, we've got to move forward. But as we think of the extraordinary moment of Christ become man, he could have appeared fully grown, but he decided to undergo the process of growth in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And as we're in this process of, of thinking about Advent, of preparing for Christmas, all of the uh, readings in the Catholic Mass remind us of this coming Messiah, of this these prophecies. And we can kind of, as it were, enter into, as we place ourselves 
in these readings and in the gospel of the mass, we can kind of sit alongside Mary at the uh, waiting for the coming Messiah. She represents the entire people of Israel wanting this coming Messiah that all of this boils down to God wanting to be close to us. The divine wanted to make themselves close. And we often see these beautiful icons of Mary and Jesus, and she's almost pressing her cheek up against the cheek of the Messiah. And this this is the whole gospel message of God who comes close to us, who wants to be with us. And um, I'm not an expert in bioethics, but it was fascinating to me to see very high-level academics throughout the world, from Europe to the U.S. to to Argentina and, and uh, the Far East. You had like-minded academics who recognized that any potential human being must be treated with the same rights as an actual human being, you know. So, so not cutting short, not when can we cut it short, not when is the soul inserted into the zygote, and so before that it's just a group of cells, but something that is able to become a human being has the potential, needs to be protected with the same rights. And this is a very interesting argument debate, which is fomenting once again around Roe versus Wade and and uh, some of the Supreme Court case that is going on right now. So what you're saying there is kind of a, a, a change, I guess, from a few years ago, where from a secular perspective, even if we took Catholic faith and the ensoulment, as, as you kind of referred to, out of it for a moment, the idea that this is now a fully formed physical human being and has potential to grow into maturity, that that in and of itself is worth saving and is sacred from a secular perspective, if you can use the word sacred and secular in the same sentence. Well, this is kind of the philosophical argument for the protection of, of the fetus. They, they, uh, you see this very early on, even in Roman law, the protection of the fetus. Of course, it, it's not really quite PC to deal with it in the same way because the Romans saw the fetus as belonging to the head of the household, who would have been a man, and any destruction of that fetus was destruction of his property. And so the woman that had an abortion would actually be ban- banished from the city and uh, cast outside. But it was more a, a question of who owned the fetus, as it were, rather than the value of the fetus itself. But as Christian thought developed and began to imbue the uh, legal system created by the Romans, what the Greeks did with, with philosophy, the Romans did with law. They made it an art form. They made it into something that was for the good of the individual that we were talking about. So the fetus would emerge as a potential human being and with those rights that follow for any person. Okay, so when we come back, I want to move then a little into the the revolutionary nature of Christianity and how Christ come to us with such a revolutionary idea and still link it to this idea of the value and nature of human life. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Father Scott Borgman. And we're talking about the nature of humanity as we contemplate Advent. And we will continue when we return. back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Father Scott Borgman, and we have been talking about Advent and the nature of humanity, especially in the nature of Christ come to us as a human being. With that in mind, we were talking during the break a little bit about uh, early martyrdom, Tertullian, and a, another important martyr story from Carthage right around the year 200, and that was uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. And Perpetua was a, a young woman, a, a catechumenate. And Father, you were trying to to think a little bit about the nature of of how she saw life. Here we have Christians who value life tremendously, and yet they're willing to put it on the line. They're willing to 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 die. It almost seems a contradiction, but how does that make sense? 
Well, from the very early stages of Christianity, there emerges a kind of uh, more or less violent persecution. And in these first, I think it was like the first over 30 popes were martyred. And of course, we know that many of the, the apostles were martyred. So these people had some kind of faith which illuminated their entire lives and even gave them the the courage and the fortitude to throw away, as it were, life itself in order to gain something greater. They say if your faith is not worth dying for, it's probably not worth living for. And so we got to see the world through the eyes of these martyrs, through the eyes of the saints in general. One uh, wise spiritual director once told me, that if you read everything that a saint wrote, you read everything written about them, you begin to see the world through their eyes. So we see the pandemic, we see our joys, we see our anxieties, any difficulties we have through the eyes of the saints with a kind of supernatural outlook. And growing up evangelical, it's impossible really to explain our conversion experience. It, it can be compared to the experience of millions of immigrant families who grew up enduring hardship and poverty and sometimes hunger, the difficulty in their home country, and then making this arduous journey to the land of the free and the home of the brave and, uh, you know, going to Walmart for the first time and seeing the <laughs> extraordinary abundance that we have here. It's kind of the same story coming into the Catholic Church. We like to say it's it's almost like playing a country western song backwards. When you play the country western song backwards, you get your your truck back, you get your house back, you get your <laughs> wife back, you get your dog back. So when we came into the Catholic Church, we had all of these these extra we thought we were living the faith of the early Christians, yet we were lacking the unity around the Holy Father, the magisterium, which is qualified to uh, interpret the Holy Scriptures. So we had, finally we had the true interpretation of the Holy Scriptures as the early fathers and the early Christians saw it, right? All of the sacraments and tradition of the church. Anyway, I could go on and on, but one of these great riches we discovered were the saints, these ordinary human beings who tapped into an extraordinary grace which God gives us as human beings and uh, canonization basically means that the Catholic Church, with a process usually taking centuries, certifies the lives of the saints, saying, if you do what this person did, you will undergo the process of sanctification. You'll become that holiness which God wants to communicate to each of us. And in the dawn of the third century, there lived a wonderful young noble woman, 22 years old, married with a young child, the family unit also included her parents and two brothers in the same house lived several slaves, both men and women. She was a, a catechumen, and her name was Perpetua, and she was preparing to receive baptism together with some of the slaves. Persecution really exploded against the Christians and uh, those who refused to worship the emperor. You could worship any gods you wanted from Egypt or the Far East, but you had to recognize the uh, emperor as a god, or you might be a risk to the state itself. And everything, of course, you know, you, you go to Rome today and you walk on the streets, you see this SPQR everywhere, Senatus Populusque Romanus. Everything was for the, the Senate and the people of Rome. So they began to kill off these Christians, but the judges weren't these heartless, you know, people, and, and, and they weren't just, it wasn't just done willy-nilly. I mean, they would they would have acts of the case and they they would analyze they would try to convince these these people to recant and the same thing happened to perpetua and and her slave felicity revocato saturnino all these slaves that were with her there was one called secondulo catechumens like herself it could have been any of us and the judges had pity on her and tried to convince the young mother to apostatize or even just burn incense to the emperor and i think many of us would have kind of looked at the circumstances and said, well, you know, God, Real is, all, Real God is all merciful, he'll forgive, and we can move on from here and just go to confession and start over again. Her own father put tremendous pressure, saying that if she died, her child would be an orphan, the entire household would be dishonored because they would have this this kind of mark on their reputation. I, uh, I like to quote a French Catholic novelist, Léon Blois, or B-L-O-Y, Blois, from uh, his book La Femme Pauvre, which is uh, The Poor Woman. 
He says the only real sadness in life, the only real failure, the only great tragedy is not to become a saint. Because we're all called to this perfection of love. And it's important that we are able to speak of this kind of eye-to-eye or heart-to-heart of these delicate subjects in this uh, in this world today that is so full of misinformation and fake news. And um, it's important that we speak openly because life is short and we don't have a lot of time. St. Thomas says the most difficult thing about holiness is wanting it. And so we've got to see these early martyrs as, as kind of part of our family, part of that host of witnesses as St. Paul referred to them, who have gone before us and they're cheering us on to, to dig deeper into our faith, to read the beautiful catechism of the Catholic Church, which, which is really a riveting text and Perpetua's conversion with her father recording, recorded in the acts of her martyrdom is very moving. This, that she compares herself to kind of a, a, a terracotta vase, and she says, you know, to her father, can we, can we call it by anything else? And he says, well, no. And she says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ, and I cannot be but what I am. And I won't read through the entire script, but when the representative of the emperor, who paradoxically was named Hilarionus, asks her, are you a Christian? And she says, yes, I am. And she writes, when my father persisted in trying to dissuade me, Hilarionus ordered him to be thrown to the ground, beaten with a rod. So her whole family is affected. But when you fall in love with this Christ who gave his life completely for us, forgiving even on the cross those whom he received his persecution, unmerited uh, trial and death, those things were forgiven immediately by him because his heart was free. And I think as we consider this Advent season, as we consider the things going on around us in our world today, it's important that we have a very vivid understanding of what our faith is. And are we willing to die for our faith? And can we forgive those who are around us? Oh, the end of that story of Perpetua, at least um, the part of her martyrdom before they do some reflection. She's gravely wounded by a number of different things, and there is a gladiator who, or a soldier or whatever he is. He comes up to her, and he's a young guy. And as he holds his sword up to her, he, his hand is shaking, and he can barely hold the sword up, but he's supposed to, to strike the death blow. And she takes hold of the blade of the sword and guides it up to her own throat to help him in this moment of struggle because that's his call to help her go meet the Lord. Even though she tremendously values this life, she values her life with Christ even more. What a fascinating but but truly disturbing message that really is. It is, and uh, we see her and her slaves would die confessing their faith in Christ The Church's liturgy has chosen to place Perpetua and Felicity in one of the Eucharistic prayers of the Mass. And again, you know, it uh, it says something about our Catholic faith, about the value of life, but not as a... I I think many people are scared today of death. We've uh, we've come to have this kind of idolization of life and comfort so that uh, we're willing to even uh, give up a lot of our rights in order to place life sort of on a pedestal. So we learn from the martyrs that there's only up to a certain point, right, that we value physical life but not over spiritual life and spending eternity with God forever and ever with our loving Savior and with all these saints who have gone before us. We live in an era that is very sanitized. We have very few examples in our normal, everyday lives of great suffering and death around us. It used to be a couple generations ago, if someone died in your household, you had that person lie in state in your household. And um, people saw death. Children saw death. People knew what suffering was. My father remembers hearing as a young, young child, his father dying of tuberculosis. Mm. That was in an era when they stayed at home. 
we don't have that today. And I almost wonder if that insulation from suffering, that insulation from death, has um, made us afraid of it. And you raise an interesting point, because here we have Perpetua, a young 22-year-old. She was a noble woman. She had slaves do all of the, the major work around her, at least she would have for that time. And yet she was willing to face her death. And even at the moment when, okay, it's now a reality, she's wounded, and she's still able to lift that person's arm up to her throat to for the final death blow. Is it more than just the, the, the sanitization, or do we have a problem with faith today that's different than what they had say it at 200 well jesus is pretty clear that uh that, that you gotta have faith right we have to invest ourselves in this faith but i think there's a few other elements which can complete the picture and one of those is divine filiation god is absolutely bananas for you he loves you he would have sent his son to die if you were the only person on the planet and uh until we realize that god is our father Abba, or Daddy, as the the young Hebrew kids would say, until we realize this divine filiation, the gift that each one of us is wanted by God, I think it's it's quite difficult to understand the the extreme sacrifices of some of these early martyrs and even those today who who give up many things, even in their businesses and stuff, in order to live the kind of life of virtue that Christ calls when He says to follow in his footsteps. Wow. We are talking with Father Scott Borgman, and we are discussing the nature of human life, especially as we reflect on Advent. When we come back, I have a question about Jesus Christ come to us as a baby and why that is so important to the story of Christ. Um, you're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Father Scott Borgman, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Father Scott Borgman, who is here in the tribunal, but has been very involved in discussions and in thinking about the value of human life. And we are talking about that subject, especially in the context of Advent and the idea that Jesus Christ has come to us. You know, we were talking, Father, during the break a little bit about how Jesus comes to us in, of all places, um, Galilee, which is, for those of you who are not that familiar with the map, it's, it's north of Judea, north of Samaria, in almost what uh, at that time was kind of a, a resettled, almost a colony of, of Judah, and it was kind of a second-class, almost a backwater area. And yet that's where God chose to appear to the world as one of us. There's a humility in there, but there's a message in there, and it all centers around the value that God has for human beings. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, obviously the second only to Easter, the resurrection of our Lord, the church puts an emphasis on Christmas as kind of the uh, the, the highlight of the liturgical season. We have this, these four weeks of preparation and Advent, which kind of lead us to this moment where all time kind of stops, right? Every moment before the incarnation refers to the incarnation, and every uh, year that happens afterwards refers back to this moment in time when God himself becomes man, when God decides to enter into the Virgin Mary, and grow like any human being. It kind of gives a value to life, just like his work in the uh, those 30 silent years in Nazareth in the carpenter's shop gives value and redeems work. His baptism kind of redeems this uh, this sacrament, and, uh, and it redeems all the waters for baptism as he descends into the Jordan and comes back out. Essentially, the course of human history is changed forever. The Word is made flesh. Jesus Christ becomes a, a, but a child. And all the prophets had announced this arrival. The, the Virgin Mother carried him in her womb with all of this love that a, that a mother 
has, and uh, John the Baptist is preparing the way. And uh, for us, it's a kind of remembering, but it's a, it's sort of also a recognition of the value of life itself, that that God didn't have to become a human being. I mean, he created he created each one of us, and that's enough. But he decided to live out this uh, extraordinary progression of life in time, in order to kind of sanctify the life that we have. And and as we uh, go through the various stages of life, we know that he experienced, you know, the uh, life as a child, as a, as an adolescent. And uh, throughout this whole process is obedient to his parents. He fulfills the law perfectly. Everything he did was good. So it gives us a uh, not only a veneration of the origins of life uh, within the family unit, but also encourages us to approach life from a kind of a sanctified standpoint, from a kind of a, a, a veneration of what can happen in this life and in the life to come. So this is the value that we have for all human life. I mean, one of the things that is characteristic of a number of people who are in what we today would call the pro-life movement is the focus on stopping abortion. But the Catholic position is about life from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death and, and not only that, because it values, we value human life so much, the dignity of every human being along the way is to be protected. That's tied to this pro-life understanding so that not only do we give dignity to the child in the womb from the very moment of conception to the last dying moments where a person, we don't know what kind of conversion a person may have in those last moments. Why would you cut that short? We, we don't believe in euthanasia. We don't believe that you stop that process that God is working through. But along the way, this is why we have such a, a drive towards social justice. It's not about some sort of a Marxist ideology. It's about trying to see the dignity of Jesus Christ reflected in every human being. And that started in a very humble but profound way up in this backwater area of Galilee. And it seems to me that we're having now in our 21st century a call to be reminded of that dignity without getting too esoteric about uh, the COVID-19 and all. But even in the midst of, of God allowing a, a horrible thing like COVID-19, because there is a permissive will that has operated here. God has allowed it to happen. Doesn't mean that he caused it to happen. But what can we learn from it? Is there a reminder that we can take from it? I mean, it's kind of like, okay, not every part of your of your dinner is the same taste, but what can you get from each portion? Okay, COVID-19 is horrible. Terrible things are going on, but are there is there still good in amongst what has been terrible? I was at a dinner the other day, and uh, the, the host asked this question, you know, from this uh, perspective of having sort of survived the pandemic, as it were, what are some of the positive things that you've received through this experience? And, and it was really very interesting to go around the table and kind of see, of course, we've increased our desire and our recognition of the value of the sacraments, you know, being able to go to church and receive the Eucharist, sometimes for hundreds of years in certain countries, Japan notably, people couldn't receive the sacraments. And so there's this kind of good that comes from the difficulty. We have this concept in Catholicism, and not to get off on a tangent here, but it's of redemptive suffering. And I think it's hard to understand the incarnation of Christ without the understanding that suffering within the Catholic tradition has meaning, that it's not just without meaning. And this can draw us closer to, to the martyrs, closer to understanding our own situations as we uh, continue to wrestle with the inconveniences of the pandemic and e even the delays in the supply line, in essence, could be uh, life-threatening as far as me the medical field goes and that kind of thing. But recognizing that God became man, he, uh, he lives his entire life and dies an ignominious death on the cross in the worst 
torturous way possible, what the Romans had come up with for terrible criminals, right? And yet through all of this experience, you have this kind of redemption of the world. And this is why our, once we get to closer to Easter and Holy Week, we can say, oh, blessed wood of the cross, oh, blessed nails that pierced so loving hands of our, our Lord, the loving hands of our Lord. And this value of life that uh, that we need to protect at the beginning, at the end, has a message, I think, within the context of redemptive suffering, that uh, our goal in life is not just to avoid suffering at all costs, but that our life indeed would have a kind of meaning, even in the last moments as we prepare ourselves to meet God face to face, if, if we are indeed without sin at that moment, or undergoing a purification process in purgatory before meeting God. So from a Catholic perspective, the redemptive value of suffering, when I look at, not to interrupt my own sentence here, but when I look at the nature of what Jesus went through, as you said, the Romans invented, they didn't invent crucifixion, they perfected crucifixion. They got it so it could be horrible in multiple ways. But yet it's almost as if God was saying, okay, all the evil that human beings can do, bring it on. Let me have it. Put it all on me. Let me have your best shot. And I can endure that. And even though you may kill me, I will rise again because my love is more powerful than your evil. And there's a participation in that that's cathartic, I think. When we experience suffering, when we see suffering, when we witness it from an empathetic perspective anyway, blessed are those who mourn, it's not about yourself that you're mourning necessarily. There's a joining in in that process of Christ's conquering evil. He doesn't avoid the evil. He goes through it and then is able to rise beyond it. It's a message about our lives. Life is so very important, and yet it's also one of, of great struggle, and there's a mystery to that that's still a loving, beautiful mystery. And uh, I think one uh, gospel which really illuminates this is uh, the, the gospel of the healing of the blind man Bartimaeus. And uh, Matthew 9 brings the two blind men who kind of are following after Christ, shouting for him. We see that, that within the scriptures again and again and again, it's, it's someone's suffering which actually brings them close to the Messiah. You know, these lepers that are healed probably never would have met the Messiah had they not needed something from him. And so God yeah. meets us in our need, and these various sufferings can become sources of bitterness for us, or they can be the moment that we encounter God. And uh, in this, there's also a kind of a faith expressed, you know, when he uh, heals Bartimaeus, he says, go your way, your faith has made you whole. Immediately he receives his sight and follows him on the way. But Jesus calls out for this faith. For instance, the, the father whose daughter has died, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, and she shall be well. A few moments earlier, he had just cured this woman who had suffered from 12 years of internal hemorrhaging, and uh, she just comes up behind him, touches his cloak, and uh, Jesus says to her again, Be it done unto you as you desire. Great is thy faith. You know what's really fascinating about that, too? It's not just her faith that saves her, because she's not cured until she actually makes that contact. with. Jesus. She has to actually reach out and do something about it. There's something about our engaging Christ, not just thinking about it, not just having a hopeful thought, but that engagement in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes it's that suffering, I think, as you were pointing out, that drives us to it. As they say, there are no atheists in foxholes when the shells are flying overhead. Yeah, in, in essence, she chooses the way that she believes she will be healed, but it's her faith which causes this force to kind of go out of Christ. He He's ter probably turned the other way, right? He and he kind of says, well, you know, who touched me? He realizes somebody touched him with faith, and, and the disciples are probably kind of amused. Well, everyone's been touching you all day. You know, they've been pressing in on you. And, but uh, definitely this, 
this moment of the act of encountering Christ and the faith which sets her free. And so we ask God, you know, give us faith, increase our faith alongside the apostles so that uh, we too can believe and be healed. We are talking with Father Scott Borgman about the nature of Christ come to us as one of us, as a human being here in the time of Advent. When we come back, Father, I want to ask you about what you think is most important for us to take from these weeks of Advent as we prepare for Christmas. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today is Father Scott Borgman. And before I go any further, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Father, for coming in and spending time with us. Talking about some very deep philosophical ideas about who Jesus is as one of us. Come to us in the manger. He comes as a human being, the God in human form. And we don't always think deeply about that. And this is an opportunity where the church invites us to really reflect a little bit about what the human nature is all about. Thank you for spending some time talking with us about that. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I think our experience of coming into the Catholic Church and realizing the value of the sacraments, that God wants to transfer grace through the words and the actions of the sacrament, which make up kind of the essential items of uh, each individual sacrament, but especially the Eucharist. And so many stories of, of the Eucharist, actually uh, people being sustained for prolonged periods of time. One uh, young saint that I'm thinking of is Martha Robin in France. And if you have a, a chance to kind of investigate some of her life, and 50 years she lived on the Eucharist. And we forget that grace changes matter. And she only received the Eucharist once a week. We can receive it every day, you know. And then you think of some of these early church uh, testimonies of, uh, for instance, St. Cecilia, who was martyred for her faith and uh, has an extraordinary story, but uh, whose body was found even 1,300 years after her martyrdom, still intact, incorrupt. You know, you, we were talking a moment ago about some of these uh, instances of dead people touching the relics of saints and that uh, vivifying them or bringing their life back. It's So the physical takes on a whole new kind of supernatural quality to it. What we do with our bodies matters, right? When Mary goes to Elizabeth's, they say she's the first procession, really, the first monstrance carrying our Lord through the streets of the Holy Land. And our bodies are, are indeed the tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. So what we do matters. We can't just reject our physical being, but uh, Christ becoming man definitely gives a new meaning, right, to our physical experience. Both you and I are, are converts to the faith, and one of the things I remember when I was struggling with Catholicism was how physical it was. You mentioned just a moment ago that grace changes matter. And there's a a sense to this that I I remember feeling as if there weren't as good answers where I was as there seemed to be in the Catholic Church. Catholics seem to do it well when it comes to trying to deal with how our physical life impacts our spiritual life. It's not about having a once saved, always saved, or a faith alone. It's about faith and follow through. It's about faith and how we live it out. I'm a married man. And as a married man, I know that I can tell my wife I love her a lot. But if I haven't taken out the garbage lately, it's not going to matter a whole lot because my actions are going to tell yeah. my wife exactly what I mean by my words. Yeah. And that's an important thing to actually then grow in love with taking the garbage out. Well, in a strange sense, yeah, because it's something my wife will actually appreciate And that I love. And that's something that you only really learn over time. And that's something I think Catholics do very well with. Was that your experience as well, Father? 
Well, I think we're often accused of, uh, you know, doing whatever we want during the week and then going to confession on Saturday and, and starting over. But confession is one of my favorite, uh, sacraments. It's really extraordinary that, that, uh, you can go to a complete stranger, unload all of your worst sins, the things that you'd be ashamed, you know, to say anywhere else, and you can walk away after absolution, do your penance, and be completely free, start over, in grace, immaculate, St. Paul called it when he wrote, I believe, to the Colossians. He wrote that they were immaculate. This word that we use often to describe Mary, the word that is the same word to describe Adam and Eve in the garden, that we were actually created to live without sin. And this sinlessness is kind of the path to holiness and that that would help us Confession is kind of like a car wash, right? Nobody wants to sit in the car wash longer than they have to. But coming out, you discover that your rims are clean, your windows are allowing the light of the sun to penetrate into the car more deeply and more brightly. And uh, as we experience this sort of progressive entry into the fullness of Christ, into the fullness of what it means to be sons and daughters of God, we do indeed experience the support of the sacraments and the ability to come closer and closer to Christ. And what's fascinating to me about all of that is that it comes through a physical component. Jesus Christ, when he, in his last uh, meeting with the apostles, he says, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I send you any reason. And he says, the sins you forgive are forgiven. The sins you retain are retained. They have to hear the sins. They don't, they're not given the gift of clairvoyance. They can't read your minds. But then they have the power of attorney. They've been given the right to be able to act on Christ's behalf. Just as the Father sent him, he's sending them. They're his representative. You, Father, are his representative. Having passed that along, having received on your head the ordination of your bishop, who received ordination from his bishop, who received ordination from his bishop, ad infinitum back to the apostles who received that from Jesus Christ himself, there's still that physical, spiritual dynamic, that component that's in there. Well, it's a beautiful thing, and there's a text you guys are probably all familiar with, but which really kind of demonstrates this this importance of the physical, our physical nature. I happen to have it right here where Jesus was born in an obscure village, the child of ordinary people. He grew up in a small town in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend, and twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, All the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And as we reflect on this moment in time, these 33 years of Christ on this earth, it becomes for us a school of love. It was a wonderful thing you mentioned about your wife earlier, you know, taking out the trash is kind of a an act of love, bringing your flowers. Maybe we can focus on something that <laughs> smells a little better, but uh, bringing your flowers. Anyone who's been married for half a minute knows that the feelings wear off, you know, and then we need something deeper, some kind of commitment. And this is kind of our experience with our faith as well, that it's not just a once saved, always saved. It's, it's a process. St. Paul, at the beginning of his letters, writes, I am saved, right? But then in the in the middle area of his letters, there's this kind of evolution where he says, I'm being saved. We are being sanctified. And this is why we can improve. We can go to confession. We can begin again whenever we have to. But then at the end of his letters, he says, I hope to be saved. And in this 
hope to be saved, he realizes his own sinfulness, his own need for grace, and uh, our need to really make Christ the center of our lives. Wow. And this is the man who also said that he was making up in his own sufferings what was lacking the sufferings of Christ. Someone who could even at that moment know that I may not end up coming out saved, though I think all of us would say if Paul didn't make it, we're we're all in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. But nevertheless, while I am in a state of grace, I can join my sufferings with you. And it will be helpful to you. I think we've been talking about this is a very complicated thing, this this incarnation. And it's something that I think we, we have um, smoothed over and, and made into um, a, a modern, almost a, a package that we're able to sell as Christmas. And it's all over everywhere as a prepackaged understanding of who Jesus is, and it comes complete with Santa Claus. And <laughs> the bottom line is the nature of Jesus come to us as one of us to bring us to God is a very profound, profound thing. Thank you again, Father, for taking some time to share that with us. If you would be so kind as to pray for all of our listening audience and perhaps impart your blessing, I think we'd all be deeply appreciative. Very good. Well, thank you for having me, Rick. It's been uh, it's been great chatting with you and um, hope to continue to reflect on this uh, moment in the cave of Bethlehem as a school of love. For each one of us. Glory to the Father who sent his Son for our sake. Adoration to the Son who by his crucifixion redeemed us. Thanksgiving to the Holy Spirit through whom the mystery of our salvation is brought to fullness. Blessed be God who in his love gave us life. To him be glory forever. And may Almighty God bless all of you listening. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow. Once again, I want to thank you. You have been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today has been Father Scott Borgman from our own diocese. Here he is part of the tribunal, but has been sharing with us quite a bit about the nature of humanity come to us in Jesus Christ, who at the end of Advent, at the beginning of Christmas, comes to us as one of us. If you would like to share this with someone, you can find this as a podcast after it's been broadcast, at least a little bit after that. You can go to OCCatholic.com. And at OCCatholic.com, you can go to the radio tab. And at the radio tab, you will find a number of programs that we do, including this flagship show, Orange County Catholic Radio, where this will be made available as a podcast shortly after. Again, you're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. On behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. May you have a good rest of your Advent and a very, very happy Christmas. Thank you.